Well, as you're seated, you can turn to Exodus chapter 13. We're going to finish up both chapter 13 and 14. We'll go all the way through. So we've got a lot of text to cover in a relatively short amount of time, depending on how you view the sermon this morning and how long I keep us. So I'll ask you, you know, as, as we go through a lot of text, to, to, to put your thinking hats on, to, to stay with me as I go, and we'll see what the Lord has to say to us through Exodus 13 and all of 14. As we begin, I'll, I'll ask you a question. That is, have you ever been placed in a no-win situation? You might have experienced that in certain relationships or um, predicaments, a no-win situation. Maybe as you're applying for a job in your chosen career path or profession, and all the jobs say they must have three to five years of experience, and you ask yourself, how am I supposed to get a job if I don't have any experience and all of them require three to five years? How am I supposed to get those three to five years? So that's a no-win situation. It's a predicament. Or maybe you have the predicament of many young families where you need uh, the second spouse to work to um, pay the bills, but then the cost of childcare will almost wipe out the whole income. So how do you do? How do you go forward with that? There's a no-win situation, or there's a no-win situation that many. Uh, well, I don't know about many. This is somewhat of a myth. I don't know how real it is, but the witch trials in Europe where they would try suspected witches by binding them and throwing them in the water. And if they floated and lived, then obviously they were calling upon demonic powers and they were a witch. And if they didn't, well, they were innocent. We call that a no-win situation. There's also the no-win situation, maybe you've experienced this, with relatives who complain about you not calling or visiting enough every time you visit them. Well, I don't want to experience that every time, so I stay away, and then that just perpetuates the problem. What do you do? These are no-win situations, right? And Israel, in the passage this morning, is placed in a no-win situation. That is where they are. They have left Egypt now. The plagues have fallen upon Egypt, and Egypt has basically been crushed. They have now left and been delivered, but they find themselves kind of going out of the frying pan and into the fire, because they are placed in an impossible no-win situation on one side, the sea, on the other side, the coming Egyptian forces. And they trapped in the middle. We know that about this passage. Right? It's a familiar passage. I think what's surprising, though, about this is the emphasis throughout this story and how God intentionally places them in this no-win situation. And why? That's a theme that runs throughout all of this passage that... They aren't there by accident that God has very specifically, purposefully, and intentionally placed Israel, his people, in this no-win situation where they're trapped and there's no way out. And what I want to examine this morning is why does God do that? And I'll propose the answer to you right up front. Here's my answer. I think God puts them in an impossible situation to show his power and his glory. I'll word it this way. That God guides his helpless people through certain destruction, to show his incomparable glory. It's a little wordy, but it encapsulates, I think, all of what's going on in this Red Sea crossing, that God guides his helpless people through certain destruction to show his incomparable glory, to show who he is. This is something that we need to realize if... We're going to walk the Christian life, whether we are Christians or, or thinking about becoming a Christian. Something you need to know about the way God operates is that he often puts his people in no-win situations, in impossible circumstances, only to save them and show how glorious and powerful he is. 
Following the Lord is not comfortable, and that's what the Israelites are going to experience in this passage this morning, that God guides his helpless people through certain destruction to show his incomparable glory. We're going to work through the whole passage in four sections, four scenes, um, that will take us through the Red Sea. The first scene is in verses 17 through 22. Verses 17 through 22 of chapter 13. And here we see Yahweh's guiding presence. Yahweh's guiding presence. I want to bring back and reemphasize the name of the Lord, Yahweh, because it's throughout this whole Exodus story. And so much of this Exodus story is about Israel knowing who their Lord is. And his name, his covenant name, is Yahweh. And he guides his people clearly. And that's what these verses are all about. In verse 17 of chapter 13, Yahweh's guiding presence. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they may travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart before the people, from before the people. So here we pick up. Israel has left Egypt now, and God is guiding them towards the promised land. He is leading them. And there's an easy way to go. There would be a direct path that would take them right from the land of Egypt all the way up along the coast of the Mediterranean into the promised land. And if they went along that path, it's called a Via Maris, the way of the sea. It goes through the land that the Philistines will later occupy. If they went through that path along the Mediterranean, it would take them a few days to get them from Egypt to the promised land. Instead, God's going to take them 40 years. Right? That's a big contrast. Why? Well, along that path, we know that the Egyptians were kind of fortress there along the way. They had outposts and fortresses along that path. So God knew that his people were not ready for battle. The text says that they're armed for battle. That might actually not be a good translation, that armed for battle. It might just be saying that they were orderly. They went out in units. But regardless, they weren't ready to fight. They had just been released from slavery and captivity. They were a ragtag, large group of people, but they weren't ready to battle. And we'll see that later. They aren't ready for the Egyptians. So if they went and confronted the Egyptian fortresses right away, they would lose heart and retreat immediately. So God's going to put them in a place where they can't retreat. And he's going to take them south and into and through the wilderness. And as they go, the text says that they are going to carry the bones of Joseph with them. It's kind of a a side note. It's a fulfillment of a promise made in Genesis 50. Genesis 50, 25 talks about the death of Joseph in Egypt. It says, Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and ye shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph dies in Egypt, and he has the Israelites promise that, Someday they'll take his remains back up into his true home, the promised land. That is being fulfilled now. They're taking up 400 years later. Joseph's remains with them. And it's a way, it's kind of this visual metaphor, a symbol of God taking his people home. 
that he will take them home and settle them in that land. And he will guide them as he does it, very directly in this pillar. Cloud by day, fire by night. I don't know what the cloud looked like. I don't know if it was um, smoke, like from a fire. I don't know if it was fluffy cloud. I don't know if it was like sandstorm, whirlwind type stuff. I don't know, again, if it was like the smog monster from Lost or the smoke. I don't know what it looked like, that, but there's this cloud that would be very visible and obvious by day, and then fire by night. And you think about those symbols through the Old Testament. You're familiar with those, right? Cloud and fire. God in his royal presence and power riding on the clouds, clouds being a symbol of his majesty in heaven, and then fire, a symbol of his holiness. So you have God's holy, royal presence there with the people, directly guiding them, leading them to where they will go, out of Egypt into the promised land. And as we look at that, some of you may have asked, like I asked, or wondered aloud, wouldn't that be nice? Like, wouldn't that be really cool to have just God's visible presence, that cloud, just guiding us wherever we go? Like, where am I supposed to go to eat today? And the cloud goes, Red Robin. And you know, that's where we're supposed to eat. I don't know. Um, probably, actually, it'd probably be Cracker Barrel or Chick-fil-A, right? Those are the um, God-ordained institutions. But wouldn't it be nice to have that kind of guidance? Well, as it turns out, we have, I don't know if cloud is the right word, but we have God's presence not only outside of us, but inside of us dwelling internally. We have the Holy Spirit who guides us. And how does the Holy Spirit guide us? Well, he guides us through his word. The Holy Spirit speaks through scripture. When you want to hear the Holy Spirit speak, pick up your Bible and read. There is the Holy Spirit speaking, guiding us. So as we make decisions, we can ask, does scripture allow this? Does scripture forbid this? What does scripture have to say? And if scripture is silent on the matter, then we can go to other people who have the Holy Spirit, counselors and friends and other Christians and pastors and mentors. And we can talk to them and say, what do you think? How, how do you view this? We can ask them for guidance. And then we can question our own motives internally. That's part of the important discernment process. What are my own motives? What's my own heart in making this decision? Am I being selfish? Do I just want this for me? Or am I trusting the Lord? Do I want to do this because this will serve other people and glorify the Lord? So we have these tools that God has given us, discernment by the Holy Spirit, uh, self-questioning, guiding, and we have other people. Most of all, we have God's Word who guides us. And that is a far more actually powerful tool for guiding us than even an external cloud. Because we'll see that even an external cloud, guiding and leading, can be not followed, not believed. The people will still panic here in a few verses, even with the cloud in front of them. We need our heart in the right direction if we're going to be led by the Lord. We have his spirit to do that, to help guide and lead. And sometimes the Lord will guide and lead us to very difficult places. Because God's goal for us is not to lead us into comfort or ease, but to take us to places that are really challenging and often very difficult so that when he carries us through, he will be praised and glorified and his name will be magnified. It's why God doesn't take them by the, the easy, direct way of the sea, but he prepares the people through wandering in the desert and takes them south to an impossible situation. And that's what we see here in verses 1 through 9. Our next scene, the next section, we see Israel's insurmountable peril. That's where God places them. He places them in a place where they are going to die, a place of imminent danger, a place of insurmountable peril. That's where God leads them through this cloud. 
Look at verse 1 of chapter 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Haharoth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped at the sea by Pi-Haheroth in front of Baal-Zephon. So here we see God lead his people to a certain place with three little towns or markers or outposts, and we don't know where they are. Pi-Haheroth, Migdal, which means like tower or fortress, so it's probably some type of tower or um, an outpost, and Baal-Zephon, which is probably, by name we can guess it, featured a temple to Baal there. But we don't know where these towns are, we just know they're by the Red Sea, which actually doesn't help us all that much because we're not quite sure where the Israelites crossed over the Red Sea. Um, if you look at the geography of the place, the, um, the Red Sea kind of shoots up into Arabia towards the Mediterranean, and as it approaches the Sinai Peninsula, the Red Sea splits into two different gulfs, the Gulf of Suez and the Gulf of Aqaba, and then above the Gulf of Suez, there's a body of water known as the Bitter Lakes, and there's three different locations, which all might be called the Red Sea, where the Israelites could have theoretically crossed. The traditional crossing point, the traditional view is that they crossed at the Gulf of Suez on the left side of the Sinai Peninsula, and they crossed over there. But there's debate and there's um, arguments back and forth for where exactly they crossed. I won't bore you with those. It's not ultimately important. My opinion, I think where they crossed was on the northern part of the Suez uh, Gulf that might connect with where the Bitter Lakes are. Not important, that's just for you to consider. The point is not necessarily that we know exactly where they crossed. The point is that we know that where they crossed was an impossibly bad strategic location. Like, if the general led him there, that general should be dismissed because he led his people into danger, into a horrible tactical position with their backs against the sea and no way to cross and Egypt marching towards them. They were literally kind of between a rock and a hard place between the sea and the Egyptian forces. And Egypt now is pursuing them because Pharaoh said, what did we do? We let them go? What was I thinking? You know, and Pharaoh has another change of heart. He had let them go because Egypt was crushed by all the firstborn sons dying, but now they sober up and realize that their workforce has left them with a lot of their gold and silver. So he musters all of his forces up, and they are going to pursue Israel, and they can catch him in a few days. And you'll notice throughout this whole passage that there's an emphasis on Pharaoh's chariots and his horses and the, the army that he sends, and it's repeated over and over again. All the king's horses and all the king's men, right, are sent after Israel, and 
that's repeated over and over to show us how powerful this force was that Egypt was sending. They were going full force after Israel. Israel did not have a chance against these 600 chosen chariots of Egypt. Pharaoh was sending his mightiest army at them. Behind them, death in the sea. In front of them, death by Egyptians. And God put them there. God's the one who stirred up Pharaoh to go. He hardened Pharaoh's heart. He orchestrated all of this and put them in this impossible position. They are really dead. And it strikes me that they're in a very similar position to that we are in when we are born in this world. We are born dead. We can ask, why does God allow this? Why does God orchestrate this? But the fact is that we are born dead in captivity, just as the Israelites were in captivity. We were born captive to the kingdom of darkness, no power to get out of it, no power to save ourselves. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. In the same way you could say, you, Israel, are dead between the sea and Egypt. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's what Paul is saying. You were born a child of wrath. That's the situation you were born into. You were born into an impossible situation you cannot get yourself out of. And the question is, why does God do this? And the answer is, I think, so that God can show his power and his glory in saving people so thoroughly dead. It's the same reason a magician has an assistant. This makes sense in a second, I think. But if you take a magician or somebody who's like a knife thrower and they're just throwing knives at the wall. And they can hit a target. That's somewhat impressive, but not all that glorious. But if you take that same knife-throwing action, and then you put a wheel on that wall, and you strap an assistant to that wheel, and you spin them around real fast, and then they start throwing knives, and then they don't hit that person, you think, that's impressive. (laughs) The other person being in such danger makes the act more glorious, right? And that is what's going on here. Israel being in such... Peril is what makes God's salvation so glorious. It'll happen in such a way that Israel couldn't possibly get the credit for it. Their salvation will occur in such a way that they cannot look at themselves and say, we did this. They have to look at their impossible situation, how God carried them out, and say, only God could have done that. This is a salvation that only God could have brought. And that is the salvation you and I have experienced in God. It is a salvation that we could not orchestrate by ourselves. We were dead. We didn't have the power to do it. Only God can do that. By his power, his glory, only he can bring that kind of salvation. The Israelites can't see that yet. For now, they panic. And that's what happens in verses 10 through 18. In our third scene, the Israelites panic. We see Israel's panicked plea. They cry out in terror, crying to the Lord and to Moses, Israel's panicked plea. Look at verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, 
Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. She will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen." So as this terrifying army comes closer, the Israelites cry out, they complain. They complain to Moses because he's the mediator between God and the people. We'll see that work the other way here in a few verses. And with, they cry out with a little bit of an irony. They cry, were there no tombs, graves in Egypt? And of course, if you know anything about Egypt, there's nothing but tombs in Egypt. That's what they're known for, is having tombs. Their monuments are tombs. So there's a great bit of irony here as they cry out, couldn't you just have buried us there? Do we have to go out here to die? And what comes clear is their preference is, we would rather be comfortable there in slavery than on the edge of death out here. It was far better to be back in Egypt where we were in captivity and we knew what the score was than to be out here ready to die. And I think this is the disposition of all those who will not come to the Lord. I think this is what keeps people from following Jesus. Better to be in captivity to sin and to my present life than to have to put myself to death following the Lord or to risk what I might have to risk following Jesus. Much more comfortable to live in the world and be accepted by the world and to have that, even if I'm captive to it, and captive to my sin, better to have that than to have to face death of some things I really love and want to hold on to and follow the Lord. Panicking, they cry out to God, and Moses will have to respond. He tells him, just stand. Just wait. That's all you have to do. You don't have to fix this. You don't have to save yourselves. Just be silent and watch. And that's what the Lord assures, that the Lord will bring salvation. And actually, first the Lord confronts Moses. He says, Moses, why do you cry to me? And you say, well, it's not Moses crying, but Moses represents the people. So God speaks to Moses as a representative of Israel. Moses, why do you all, why are you crying out to me? And God says, look what I will do. I will bring salvation. Lift up your staff. Stretch out the waters. Divide the waters, and I will crush the Egyptians in them. Watch the salvation I will bring that will bring glory to me. All you have to do is stand and watch. And this is a word for us when we panic. All we have to do is stand and be still and watch the Lord work. Standing in faith is God's surprising antidote to panic. 
I don't know if you've felt like you've been in impossible situations this year. Some of you I know have been in very, very difficult places. And in those difficult places, our temptation is to try and fix it all ourselves and to panic and fret and think we have to get it under control. And if we could only do this and manipulate this and force this, then we could fix it. And very often, God's call to us is to watch and wait and look to him. Stand. A quote by Charles Spurgeon, found by Phil Riken, I read in the commentary of his, and Spurgeon said, I dare say you will think it is a very easy thing to stand still, but it is one of the postures which a Christian soldier learns not without years of teaching. I find that marching and quick marching are much easier to God's warriors than standing still. It is perhaps the first thing we learn in the drill of human armies, but it is one of the most difficult to learn under the captain of our salvation. The apostle seems to hint at this difficulty when he says, Stand fast, and having done all, still stand. To stand at ease in the midst of tribulation shows a veteran spirit, long experience, and much grace. So very often what we're called to do in the midst of trouble and tribulation around us, and we're going to face it, we're going to see it, we're going to experience that in life. That's part of being a Christian in the world. And the, the Lord's call very often will be to stand and trust, have faith. That's his call to those people here, then to watch the salvation that he will bring. And the salvation he will bring here is the, the paradigm for salvation all throughout the Old Testament. All the rest of the Old Testament, much of the New is going to look back on this moment of salvation as the chief example of God's saving power. So that's what the scene's all about, verses 19 through 31. Yahweh's saving power. Here we see in the big moment of the parting of the sea, Yahweh's saving power. Verse 19. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud in the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning, watch... The Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee before, from before Israel. The Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. 
Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. So the Israelites are panicked, looking at the Egyptians, when they should have been looking to the pillar that's right before them. And the pillar moves and comes between them and the Egyptian forces. Somehow, by some miracle, this pillar was guiding them by night, lighting up the night for the Israelites so they could see and obfuscating the Egyptians and keeping them away, separating the two, so that during all that time, Moses could lift up his staff, lift up his hands, and waters would separate, or the wind would come and separate the waters. The wind would drive all night, separate the waters so the Israelites could pass through on dry land. And as they passed, there's a water wall on left and right, and they could see death on either side. They could see their destruction on each side. This is just a thought to throw out there, a connection maybe, and take this for what you will, but it reminds me of Genesis 15, the Abrahamic covenant, and Abraham has a vision of the pot, a torch with smoke and fire passing through the dead animals that are separated on either side, that covenant that God makes with Abraham that passes through death. It seems to me this is almost a, a parallel scene where Israel covenantally walks through the waters of judgment and death on either side of them. I don't know, it might be a stretch. You can consider that for yourself. But the waters separate all night from the wind that's blowing all night. And then at the morning watch between 2 and 6 a.m., the Egyptian forces finally go into the water. And from this point, the Lord looks down from the cloud and causes confusion. And it's appropriate for this in the morning. I think uh, Psalm 77, 16 through 20 says that the confusion was caused by thunder and lightning. So thunder and lightning are, are raining down. They're driven into confusion. They don't know where to go. And all of a sudden, their wheels are getting stuck. The, it seems that the Israelites were able to walk on dry land with their light footprints, and, but the heavy chariots get stuck as they're going, and they get clogged up, and literally the wheels are falling off the Egyptian army as they go in and panic. And as they're in panic, the sun rises, and God tells Moses to stretch out his arms and the staff once more, and he does so, and the waters come crashing down. And in this bit of poetic justice, the sea engulfs the Egyptians. I say poetic justice because the Israelites were thrown into the sea, their sons thrown into the sea in Exodus 1, into the Nile. And now God shows what happens and you go against his people, he throws them into the sea. Their bodies are left on the shore as a testament to the judgment of God while Israel passes through on dry land. Some throughout history have tried to say, well, this is just a natural phenomenon, what happened here. Just like they do, try to explain away the plague, to say, well, this is just a natural event. This can happen from time to time. In low tide... The wind can get going really good and waters can separate and the Israelites can go through on dry land and that's what happened here. It's just a natural event. And there's an apocryphal story, I don't know how true this is, but there's a story of a, an ac- academic preacher of sorts and teacher who was visiting a church in the south. And at that church, there's a lot more call and response than that preacher was used to. And the preacher was talking about how this event occurred, this crossing of the Red Sea, and it was just a natural thing. It's not necessarily a miracle. It just the waters were separated 
a little bit by wind coming through. And some of your crowd said, praise the Lord for his miracle of separating the waters. And perturbed, the preacher said, no, no, you don't understand. It wasn't a miracle. That's, that's the point. It, it was just three inches of water that was separating. That's all. And they were able to pass through on dry land. And the, another person spoke up and said, praise the Lord for drowning those Egyptians in three inches of water. Either way you look at this, this is a miracle. This is God's hand, as the verses say. In Exodus 6, God had promised that his hand, that he would lead them out, that he would save the Israelites and drive them out of Egypt by his mighty hand. And this is his mighty hand in action, separating the waters, leading Israel out, and those same waters of destruction coming through and judging Egypt and consuming them. It is a powerful testimony for all time that God can and does save his people. And it occurs to me as we reflect on this, and as I've been reflecting on this, that we stand very much in the same place that the Israelites did with their backs up against the sea and the forces coming in. We stand in a very similar spot today. First of all, because we too live under and live under the threat and the rage of an already defeated enemy. And you experience this, and there's temptation to panic because of it. Because we live in a day where the devil rages, though he's already been defeated. Zayden and his very real spiritual allies and demonic forces that are very real and are out there um, in some way or another press against the church. Scripture warns us about that, that he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour there's an, a spiritual enemy that wants to devour the people of God. But he is already defeated. That enemy has already been conquered on the cross. Jesus put to death, death and sin and Satan. He conquered them on the cross. And then when Jesus ascended on high and took his place on the throne, he displaced every other spiritual power and he rules over all. So that enemy is already defeated and one day will be defeated. How? By being thrown into the sea. That's the way Revelation pictures it. Revelation 18.21 talks about Babylon, that culture and world that is apart from God, an enemy of God, one to be being judged by being thrown into the sea. It's Revelation 18.21. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. Babylon will be thrown into the sea. And then Revelation talk 20 talks about how the sea will give up the dead and all those condemned, all, all those who are enemies of God, will be thrown into where? The lake of fire, as will Satan and all of his minions and all those with him be thrown into the lake of fire. All those opposed to God cast into the sea. They will be one day fully defeated. They already have been defeated. We stand in the gap between waiting for that day, just like Israel waited for Egypt finally to be crushed. They were an already defeated enemy, already judged and condemned through the plagues, and now... Egypt is finally fully thrown into the sea. We stand in that same gap, in that same awkward, sometimes terrifying place. But we face an already defeated enemy who will soon be crushed by the Lord, finally and fully 
the opportunity that sits before us is whether or not we are going to walk through the sea or be condemned in it. Everybody's going through the waters. Now fitting is it as the waters come down upon us, right? You've made that connection already, I'm sure. Everyone will pass through the water. Israelites will, Egypt will. The question is, will you pass through the water covered by God, or will you be condemned and destroyed in the water? The waters of judgment come upon all. The only way to be saved through is through a baptism of sorts. And Paul makes that connection, 1 Corinthians 10. He talks about these waters as if they're waters of baptism. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So Paul looks back on this Red Sea crossing as a baptism. It's a passing through the waters of death for, our, for salvation. As we pass through these waters of baptism, we profess faith, we trust in Christ, and he takes us through in the same way that he took Noah through the ark, and he takes these Israelites through the waters. He takes us through the waters of salvation and judgment, and that's the way we pass through. We have to go through it. There's no way around it. Judgment's coming for all. The question is, will God carry you through on dry land, or will you be condemned? That is a choice you have to make. Will you trust in the Lord and walk with him, or will you face condemnation? That is in your court. But let me tell you what's on the other side of the waters. On the other side of the waters is eternal life, in a place where Revelation 21.1 says, the sea is no more. Isn't that an interesting thought? Why does Revelation 21.1 picture eternal life, the new heaven, new creation, as a place where the sea was no more? It's not saying there won't be water there. It's saying there will be no more judgment there. The judgment has already passed, and you'll be going beyond judgment, on the other side, full to live eternal life forever. There is a new heaven and new earth waiting where there will be no more judgment. But only God can take us through He is the only one who can save us from that. And he can and he will. I guess that's that's the final encouragement for you. If you take one encouragement away from this, look to this Red Sea crossing and see how God saves his people through terrible trouble. Some of you are living that now. Some of you are experiencing the darkest days. And I need you to know, I want you to know, that God will carry his people through if they walk after him. He can save, even in possibly hard situations. Only he can save us from the enemy that we cannot defeat. Only he can save us from the waters of judgment that will come for everyone. Only he can guide us and lead us home. Only he can save by his mighty power. And only he is worthy of praise and honor. Yahweh, our God, guides his people through certain destruction, saves them from certain death to show his incomparable glory. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your salvation that is uh, not something we could provide on our own. That's not something we can manufacture. In fact, we are the helpless people. We are uh, the bait caught in the middle that you will use to show 
What an awesome God you are. And I pray, Lord, that as we walk through um, the tribulations and trials of this life, that we would look to you and trust you to carry us home. Though there is an enemy that rages, though there is a judgment that comes, though there is our own weakness right in the middle, you, Lord, can carry us home by your grace. So we ask that you would do that, and I ask that for every person here this morning. We praise your name. And Lord, may we worship you forever. Amen.